Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Philippians. In this session, we are going to look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 4. Yes, we're crossing a chapter break, and that's unfortunate that the chapter break is really where it's at. Just bear in mind that the chapter breaks were put in much later, after the Bible was already written. They weren't uh, part of the original. And sometimes those chapter breaks don't always do a good job at respecting the natural divisions of the text. And this, in a lot of ways, is one of those places. The chapter break is right in the middle of a thought where the whole section is all about a call to unity for the Philippian church. So we are going to cross that chapter break into chapter 2, verse 4. Here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, the Apostle Paul begins to really turn towards the body of the letter and address the Philippian church and some of the things he wants to really remind them of, call them to, and some of that. And we need to make sure we keep the context of that in mind. The preceding two sections of the commentary highlighted that uh, what's going on in Philippians up to this point is Paul is sharing his circumstances with the Philippians, let them know how he's doing, but really what he does is he lets them know how the gospel is doing, and because the gospel is doing well, Paul says he rejoices even in the midst of his difficult circumstances, and the reason he can do that is because for him to live as Christ and to die as gain, and so if the gospel is thriving, then Paul rejoices even if personally he's going through difficult things. He had ended the last paragraph by saying he is not 100% certain exactly what's going to be the outcome of his trial and his imprisonment, but he's kind of leaning towards believing that uh, he's going to be released from prison and able to come and visit the Philippians again. And that's where we pick up here in 127. Paul's concern is for their well-being and their conduct, whether Paul is able to come or not. And so he says in chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So Paul's basic appeal to them is, that they would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. A couple of uh, details here that are really important. This word, conduct yourself, has really a specific um, connotation and nuance that would have been particularly appealing to the Philippians. It uh, derives from a word to live as a good citizen, uh, to carry out themselves in a manner that was in keeping with the honor of their citizenship. And if you remember, uh, Philippi was a Roman colony, and so this kind of language was part and parcel of their self-understanding and of their mental framework as, as a Roman colony. It would be tantamount to saying, look, as Greeks living in northern Greece, but part of a Roman colony, conduct yourselves in a way that was worthy of your Roman standing. And that's sort of the, the thing Paul's playing off of. And so this word conduct yourselves has that political overtones to a Roman citizen. And Paul's saying, look, remember that your greatest loyalty, your greatest allegiance, and the, the person who you want to please the most and the kind of conduct you want 
to have the most is the kind that's in keeping with the gospel of Christ. And so conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Carry out your life in such a way that it doesn't bring dishonor and uh, disrepute onto the gospel of Jesus. Paul says, do that so that whether I come uh, and see you or remain absent, because he's not 100% certain how his trial is going to turn out, um, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so part of what this means then for conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel is that as a church, the church in Philippi, or really even churches today, is uh, working together in as one, working together as a unified body, right? Like, I will hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, that you're with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. This idea of working together as a church, getting along, cooperating with each other in one spirit with one mind. And so unity is at the heart of conduct that's worthy of the gospel. And that's Paul's key concern because apparently there's a little bit of friction and maybe a little bit of disunity that Paul has heard about going on in the Philippian church. Certainly nothing as severe as what we see, say, in the Corinthian church, but enough to say Paul wants to nip this in the bud, right? He wants to get a hold of this before it does begin to get really severe, and so he wants to remind them, look, as, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, make sure you're standing together as one, because that's the kind of conduct that pleases Jesus and is worthy of the gospel. And when he says striving together for the faith of the gospel, that that word striving together is a unique word. It's an interesting word, a fun word. It, it's this word soon athleo. Soon athleo. You hear athleo. It's the word we get our word athletics from. Soon is the prefix with. And so like striving together, like competing together, like as one team uh, teamwork makes the dream work, someone once said. And that's sort of the idea here. Like a, a team that's a collection of individuals all doing their own thing doesn't work so well. But when a team, even of uh, average or slightly above average players, all works very well together and communicates and plays well together and they have good chemistry together, man, they, they can... They can maybe even outshine teams that have maybe overall better talent. They just don't work together well, right? Well, that's sort of the imagery here. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, uh, presumably the opposition they were experiencing in town there in Philippi. And we know how when you have opposition, when there's pressure, when there's tension, when there's conflict, even though the conflict can be coming from the outside, it can begin to create friction on the inside, and that seems to be Paul's concern. He doesn't want uh, their, their difficulty, their hardship, their discouragement, their frustration to begin to pull them apart or cause friction and tension between them. They need to stay together as one. They are the new family of Jesus in Philippi, and they need to live together that way. And so in no way alarmed or surprised, you know, shocked by your opponents, which he says indicates two things. One, their opposition is an indicator that uh, of destruction for them, which is a sign, he says, of destruction for them, that they're going down the wrong way, that they're going against God and God's kingdom and God's way. So it's an indicator of destruction for them, 
but it's an indicator of salvation for you. And salvation here, that sense of deliverance, that sense of rescue, probably has a similar meaning here, as we said it means in Paul's news report in the section above. That idea of being vindicated in God's court. They may oppose you, they may mock you, they may run you down, but ultimately you will stand before God and you will be vindicated for your faith and your faithfulness to him and that too from God. And so all of this is is from God. In fact, he says in verse 29, for to you, wow, this is shocking what he's about to say, listen, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Notice how he describes their suffering. He says, it's been granted to you. This word granted here is actually from the same root word as the word grace. And in other words, it has been gifted to you by God's grace to suffer on his behalf. Not just to believe in him, as wonderful as that is, but even to suffer. And it speaks really of Paul, and we see it elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul and the early Christians' perspective on their suffering that it was in some sense uh, an honor that they got to suffer for the sake of Jesus. You see this, for example, in Acts chapter 4 and 5, where the apostles are beaten because of their faith in Jesus, and it says they returned home rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And that's a, that's a different perspective that I think maybe we need just to reflect on and take to heart, that it has been granted. It is, a, in, in a sense, this honor that we could be so connected to Jesus and so united with Jesus that uh, we, we could, in carrying out his mission and carrying forward his kingdom cause, we could suffer on his behalf. Not because suffering is good, not because we enjoy pain, but because we are caught up with Jesus. And we know that Jesus suffered for us, and the fact that we, in carrying out his cause, uh, can suffer, Paul says, it's been granted to you as a gift for his sake. And then he says, experiencing the same conflict, that you're experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. When did they see it? Well, they saw it, read Acts 16, when Paul was beaten with rods, put in stocks, and thrown into jail in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. You can read that story there. They saw it. They saw Paul suffering for the sake of Jesus. They saw him suffering for the cause of Christ. And now they hear him doing the same thing under arrest, in prison, in Rome. Uh, they hear that he's suffering for the, the sake of Jesus. And so Paul's like, we're in this together. We're in this together. You know, you saw it in me. You saw me rejoice in jail and sing and pray when I was in Philippi. You hear it in me now, about me now, that I'm suffering and I'm doing so with the same sort of joy. Well, we're in this together, so let's stick in this together. So in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul really draws out the implication of what he said and turns to direct appeal to them. He says, therefore, here's the, here's the thing I'm appealing for, therefore, and he lists the bases for the unity that he wants them to have. And so he says, therefore, if, and he'll list off several if clauses, and these are things like, if these things are true, and they are, live this way. So if there's any encouragement in Christ. In other words, if there's any any encouragement from being part of Christ's family, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, 
if any affection and compassion make my joy complete. And so these if statements are provide the basis for the unity that he is appealing for them to. He's like, if by being in Christ, if that provides encouragement, if uh, being a part of Christ and loved by him provides any comfort and consolation, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and fellowship of the Spirit probably best means the fellowship here created by the Spirit uh, because of the call to unity. And so the fellowship that the Spirit creates, the fellowship of oneness, if there's any affection and compassion, if Christ has made any any genuine feeling and compassion that moves you to, to doing good for others, then Paul says, make my joy complete. If you want to really make me happy, here's how you can do it. And how can they do it? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. These phrases all obviously capture this idea of unity, of oneness of spirit, right? Make my joy complete being of the same mind, same love, united, probably, most translations put this as a lowercase spirit, probably uppercase capital S spirit, united in the spirit. Uh, that just makes more sense in how Paul uses this kind of phrase and uses the word spirit, that the spirit is the one that creates the unity. There is one spirit, he says in Ephesians. And so united in or by the spirit, the unity created by God's spirit in and among you, intent on one purpose, that you have one aim, one goal that you, you are living for. And so make my joy complete by being united. Uh, maintaining that unity. And verses 3 and 4, though often set off as a separate sentence, really are participle phrases that further amplify the unity. In fact, they describe the means to achieving that unity. Here's what it's going to take for you to live together as one. Um, doing nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourself. And, and so to live together in unity, to make Paul's joy complete and to be ma maintain the same love, united in the spirit, intent on one purpose, well, that's going to play out by doing nothing out of selfishness. This word selfishness here, erythia in Greek, is... Uh, used in the Greek world outside of the New Testament, for example, in the political context, where you have various parties vying for position and various individuals trying to get ahead politically. It has this idea of rivalry and selfish ambition. It's uh, this, you know, pursuit of your own selfish agenda, your own selfish ends, your own selfish goal, using people to get where you want to go, pushing people down to get ahead. That's the sense of this word selfishness. So it's rivalry and selfish ambition and, you know, competitive spirit where you just, not that being competitive is wrong, but in your competitive spirit where you could care less about anyone else, you just want to get ahead yourself. Well, do nothing from that. Do nothing from that selfish ambition, that rivalry spirit, or empty conceit, this vain conceit where everything loops through you and it's all about what's in it for me, what do I get out of it, how does it affect me, um, get rid of that, do nothing from that, but with humility, humility of mind, which, by the way, the virtue of humility was never considered a virtue until 
the New Testament was written, this word lowliness and humility was actually by the Greeks looked upon with disdain, like who would lower themselves? And so this word had sort of this real negative uh, undercurrent until the New Testament takes it up and bestows on it dignity and worth and says, no, 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 lowliness of mind, humility is a virtue. And so lower yourself and do nothing out of pride, nothing out of high-mindedness, nothing to advantage yourself, but with humility, regard one another as more important than yourself. As you look around at your fellow Christians and you look around at your church, if we are going to maintain the same love and be united in one purpose, it's going to take humility where we look at other people and we realize, okay, you are more important than me. And, and uh, you matter more than me. So how can I serve you? How can I benefit you? How can I help you progress and move forward rather than just trying to advantage myself? Paul amplifies that in verse 4 by saying, do nothing or do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also the interest of others. Don't look out for what's in it for you, what you get out of it. Don't look at your preferences. Don't look at what's best for you. You you consider what's best for others. What do other people need? What's in the service of others? How can I use my life to benefit them? That's the kind of humility Paul is calling us to have. And all of that, remember, is driven by Paul's great concern that they would be of one mind, of one heart, of one purpose, that they would work together as one for the faith of the gospel. In our churches and in our Christian groups, the, the key to unity is humility. If we want to actually work together as one, then we have to set aside our own personal self-interest and our own selfish ambition, and we've got to work together as one. It's unity through humility. That's what Paul is appealing to here in this section of Philippians. So as we wrap up this section, let's just offer a few little implications, reflections for us. I mean, I, I think these words are in and of themselves powerful enough. They don't need a whole lot of extra voice added around them. Just think about trying to live this out in your home. If you're going to have a Christian family that's rooted in Christ, where Christ is the center, then Unity through humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility consider others more important than yourself. You live that out as a husband and as a wife. Right? These words have such rich power for all our relationships in Christ. The challenge is these words are all about others, which go very much against the grain of our humanness. We have our own rights. We, we, we need to consider ourselves and um, we tend to, you know, at least in America where I'm at, right, like we talk about, you know, looking out for number one, and looking out for number one means looking out for ourself. Paul says, no, if in Christ, to look out for number one means to look out for the other person. You're number one, you first, not me first, and that's at the heart of these words. And what difference that would make in our small groups, our churches, our families, our Christian communities, if we actively and intentionally and prayerfully, by the Spirit, sought to actually live these words out, uh, we would make Paul's joy complete. We would make 
Jesus' joy complete, who prayed earnestly that we would be one, just as he and God the Father are one. And so, may we take these words to heart. May we meditate on them. I would encourage you to actually memorize Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Memorize Philippians 2, 1 through 4, and begin to prayerfully and meditate and reflect on what would it look like in your circle of influence, in your actual relationships, to live these words out so that we lower ourselves and act out of humility and therefore bring about greater harmony, greater peace, greater unity in our Christian relationships. That's Paul's heart and uh, soul concern in this section of Philippians, that we would be a people who live with unity through humility.